Welcome to the Johnny Fallon Podcast election series, where we are taking a look back at the elections that helped to shape modern Ireland, starting with 1977 and coming all the way up to date. We are looking at it one election at a time to find out what were the issues, what were the crucial debates, who were the figures and what were the decisions that led us to the political landscape we have today. So take a step back in time, relax and enjoy a little look back at political history and the things that have made us the modern nation we are and find out just how many of these issues have moved on and how many still remain with us to this day. At the end of our last episode, we had just finished with the election of 1981, an election that had been all about a gamble by Charles Hockey, the pressures he was under as the economy started to show those signs of desperation kicking in from 20 years of, of, of mismanagement uh, in many respects, uh, or the, the roots of it could be seen back over previous 20 years certainly over the previous decade, but it had all come home to roost and he didn't have time to wait till 82 for the election. He knew he had to go. And as we said in that episode, he had gambled, gambled strongly that he could get a majority at this point in 1981 and then have a strong enough mandate to do what might be considered necessary. It didn't work out though, and largely because of... The hunger strike uh, candidates uh, who stood in that election. So Gareth Fitzgerald managed to form a new coalition with Labour that was dependent on some independents uh, to get its support, namely Jim Kemi and Sean Dublin Bay Loftus. And this government was to come in to an entirely different uh, mood to what they had hoped and they had campaigned heavily that they were going to reduce the burden of tax on people and and it was a message that resonated to some degree an expectation that we'd all get our money back and that this government would let us spend our own money and that's what seemed to be uh, uh, another yet another proposal for giving some kind of pump prime or boost to the economy but it wasn't going to be so easy once they got in there. And that was going to be the major challenge. Now, just to look back um, at, a, at a, a slightly higher level for, for a start here, because 1981 and 1982, fascinating years because everybody remembers these are these years of elections. We all know there was a series of elections, three elections that happened in quick succession. And... As we begin to move forward to the February 1982 election, you begin to see just how short a term this government actually lasts. And why was that? Why was it unable to deal with these, these problems? Everybody wanted power. Everybody wanted to be in power. But nobody seemed to know what to do with power once they attained it because they were dealing with quite a big mess. Um. And this was also a society that was changing and changing dramatically because we talked about in, in previous episodes the amount of young people, the amount of vigour that was in the country. This was uh, since 77. 
there was younger voters, there was a lot more energy and enthusiasm from different people. Uh, and, and the country had changed. It had changed socially. And we're going to talk a little bit about that because that's part of an expectation that wasn't the same generation of people that had gone through the 50s and 60s and, you know, gone through previous recessions. These people wanted a different approach to it. And politics was getting an awful lot more complicated than it had been, reducing the ability, perhaps, of some of the old big parties to deal with some of those issues. However, in terms of coming to this election in February 1982, it kind of happens out of nowhere. And it's one of those elections that's very often forgotten because people kind of, there was a sense that we were a series of elections and we don't really know it was all a bit of a mess. Why did Fine Gael fail to hold that government together? What was it about? You're going to hear lots about things about VAT and children's shoes and debates still going on as to what was it actually at the true heart of the collapse. But a lot of it was to do with just being not ready for what they actually had to deal with. Um, and this has given us, I suppose, an overall sense of, of turmoil at the beginning of the 80s. Turmoil both in society, it was a changing society, it was beginning to look at big social issues, yet it still was very much a, a Catholic state, even if it was thinking of things differently. Women were coming into the workforce a lot more, but in a very different way to the way we might know today, because there was still a lot of blockages there for women coming into it. And while they were finding a voice, they were only at the early stages of finding that voice. Any kind of social change was very difficult, very slow, still meeting a wall of thought on what was right and appropriate for a society. Uh, so Ireland was changing, but only at the beginning, really, of that, that cycle of change that is going to happen through the next 20, 30 years and change Ireland utterly, modernising it. But at this point, it's beginning to see that those things are happening, but not quite grasp them or, or deal with them. And that becomes one of the central aspects for me of this era because there's just so much going on in the background that's not really being seen at government or among the body politic. They're still trying to deal with the issues in the same old ways. And yet somehow population and people are, are almost passing them by. Now, what happens the Fitzgerald government, and we're going to get into the details and background of those few months and, and what was going on, but ultimately, by February 1982, we end up with another election. And we have an election because the government cannot get a budget through the Dáil. Um, and if you if you can't get a budget through, you automatically, the, the, the government falls. So why was this such a big deal? Um, and we know that history tells us it was to do with that on children's shoes, but, but was it? There's some debate about that. Still some debate about many of the motives uh, that drove this. But to take a step back, I'm going to go back and, and look at just some of the comment that, that, that is out there looking back at this era now. Um, and John Lee maybe paints a picture of, of Fitzgerald coming into power. They were still dealing with, with this tough economic situation and Northern Ireland as well. And he gives a sense of, of just 
you know, the, the start they get off to. Uh, quote, Fitzgerald immediately gave evidence of an unsuspected toughness and exposed internal tensions in Fine Gael, whose depth had been kept concealed more skillfully than those in Fianna Fáil. When he refused to appoint to his cabinet, much to their disgruntlement, three former ministers, Richie Ryan, Dick Burke and Tom O'Donnell, and he faced two new threats that dominated the previous decade, the financial and northern, with immediate firmness. A protest march by supporters of H-Block hunger strikers on the 18th of July left such a trail of destruction in the vicinity of the British Embassy in Dublin that the question of internal security loomed large once more in the public mind. The Minister for Justice, Jim Mitchell, showed a striking sureness of touch in handling an ugly situation, diffusing the threat with a nicely judged combination of firmness and restraint. The financial situation was even worse than Fitzgerald had feared. Spending was already far exceeding the level of the substantial predicted deficit. Fitzgerald's young Minister for Finance, John Bruton, brought in an emergency July budget, sharply increasing taxation and adopting a surprisingly austere approach for a government so reliant on independence. The speed with which the emergency budget was introduced suggested that finance officials had been vainly pressing this on the previous government and that somewhat similar proposals might have been introduced had Hahi himself been returned to office with a working majority. Unquote. So there you go. That's the mood these guys come in. So Fitzgerald arrives in, promising tax cuts. This is it. This is Fine Gael and Labour coming in here, hoping to, to change things. They're a little bit similar to Fianna Fáil in 77, coming up with a great idea, um, good plans, something the public are going to like. This will ease the burden on all of you. Now let's get in there and let's deal with it. Then they get in and they find the situation's different. Now, remember, the whole reason that we've had the election in 1981 is because Charles Hockey, who could have run the course of, of, of the, the, the government for another year, but remember, as he said, he was, he was under pressure. He wanted to run this election in February of 1981. He doesn't get to because of the, the Stardust fire. He lets it run another couple of months, but then he has to go. And he had to go because he was running out of time. He was running out of time because the economy was going south rapidly he couldn't wait till 1982 or it would be a disaster so he held the election in the belief that this was the moment he could get the overall majority if he did he'd have a strong mandate for several years he could take some tough decisions at the beginning of that term perhaps and they'd be forgotten by the end of it the old belief so he had gambled on this but the gamble had gone badly wrong because with the, the the issues in Northern Ireland and the, the H-block candidates and all of that beginning to affect his perception of how he, he loses, narrowly loses the election. Now, Fine Gael and Labour come in saying, well, look, we're going to give some people back something. We're going to give them back their taxes. This is going to be great. It's going to boost the economy. But they arrive in and go, holy cow, look at the state the finance are in. They are now faced with what how he probably knew I definitely knew in that situation from the Department of Finance. No, no, things are, are rapidly, we're, we're, we're going south really quickly. And the difficulty for these guys is 
they haven't won the majority that he was close to winning. They don't have it. They don't even have a normal coalition. They have a two-party coalition dependent on independence for support. They've got a really shaky arrangement. This was not what the country really needed at the time. They had a really difficult position because they were faced now with trying to rectify this. And they couldn't. They didn't really know what they were going to do here. But one thing became obvious. They couldn't implement their promises. Now, this is where, first of all, they do need some uh, credit on this, that they broke their election promises and broke them badly in that not only did they uh, not reduce taxes, they end up increasing taxes. Um now, that, of course, brings in all kinds of questions. People jump around and go, typical politicians, broken promises. But for the country, it was a better thing that they did break those promises at that point in time. Now, you can see here, there was a sense in, in Fine Gael of, of annoyance and a sense that Gareth Fitzgerald never really got over of, oh, well, it was all dumped on us. And, and in his book, uh, Reflections of the Irish State, um, Fitzgerald alludes to this. He, he says, quote, In the first dozen years of this period, between 69 and 81, the output of the Republic rose by over three-fifths, whereas the output in Britain in that period grew by barely one-fifth. Some of this was lost ground made up by Britain between 81 and 87, when growth in the Republic was minimal, because of the steps of the government that I led had to take to tackle the financial crisis that had been precipitated by our predecessors' huge spending increases and unwise tax cuts. Unquote. Now you can see in that, that's just a paragraph from talking about the, the context of Irish economic growth, but therein you can see and sense that little tone from Gareth Fitzgerald of, yeah, you know what, growth stagnates right throughout the 80s, and it is, it's going to stagnate right throughout the 80s. And Fitzgerald is saying it's because of my immediate predecessors' crazy policies, cutting taxes and wild spending. And you can see that there's there's that defence of that in there. Um, but it's a little bit simplistic even at that. Because, of course, that goes back much more. There was There was much more involved than just that debate at that time. There was much more involved than just the predecessor. This had been poor mismanagement for a long time. But yes, he has a point, And you can see his point that he is particularly bitter that he had to come in and sort out a problem that he believed was now not of his making, even though it's going to end up probably, probably, it, 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 let's just say it ends any hope there was of Fine Gael going into this and thinking we'll get re-elected, we'll get we'll get back, uh, we'll get back all of those things that that popularity and we'll put in a, a progressive budgetary policy. As I say, you see, Fitzgerald was hoping that you know there was a time of change, and he has been busy modernizing Fine Gael to get ready for this change. Not only has Fine Gael changed. They've changed organisationally. Having people like Peter Prendergast come in, they've managed to get their organisation very similar, as strong as Fianna Fáil, on a really good footing. They're well organised across the country, so electorally they can compete. He now starts to 
try to move on this new mood of people in the country. You had social change, constitutional change. He wants to get into bigger issues. He's he's a big thinking guy. Um, but now he's going to be curtailed very quickly by this economic problem, this acute economic problem uh, that's going to kick in. Um, but just to give you a sense as well of just some of the, the, the change that, that was going on and, and how perhaps politicians saw it. Um, Gareth Fitzgerald, again, this speaks to his mood coming out of the 1981 election and, and what that meant and, and the changes in society. Uh, he says, quote, As late as 1981, 20 years after the start of a growth cycle, most people still saw the social effects of the preceding period of economic growth in quite a positive light. This was because the marriage boom and the increase in births had marked the two preceding decades seemed at the time to offer a positive prospect of social stability combined with a renewed social dynamic, whilst a rise in non-marital births and the emergence of a significant level of Irish abortions in Britain had not yet attracted much attention. For my own part, I can recall the exhilaration I experienced at the crowds of young people with their families that thronged the streets as I campaigned in the June 1981 election, something that seemed to bode well for the future of our society. What were the precipitating elements in this process of radical social change, which started imperceptibly in the 70s and became increasingly apparent as we moved through the 80s? Although there are several specifically Irish aspects, most of the forces at work have been operating in all industrial societies over many decades. In the Irish case, they simply started later than elsewhere and were compressed into a shorter period. These factors can, I believe, be summarised under six main headings. The growth of individualism, the much wider use of contraception, the expansion of female employment, the rapid increase in the level of education attained by young women, the decline in religious beliefs and practice, and what seemed like a reversal of social pressures that previously operated against premarital sex. Unquote. Now that's Gareth Fitzgerald talking about the exhilaration he was feeling as those crowds of young families on the streets in, in 1981 while he campaigned. Um, and he does give a good summary there of, of the type of things that were changing in society. And it's important to understand these in the context of the, the political drama that was unfolding because... As he said, things like individualism, it was growing everywhere. People were moving away from being grouped in these big old homogenous groups. You could say the people here are rural people, in city dwellers. All individuals were thinking differently. People were thinking for themselves. Even in the early 80s, even as we talk about Catholic Ireland, there was a change as people began to become more individually Catholic. They were still Catholic, but they thought as individuals and chose a little bit. There was phrases like a la carte Catholicism, you know. Um, people were beginning to think, well, I can do what I believe myself and not be told by others. And in political parties too, individualism was growing. So the old discipline was tougher to keep. And that was important because Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael had done a very good job here at this point in reorganising because they had adapted. They still had the old systems. And I'm going to talk a little bit in a while just of what those systems look like so people can understand them. But they had the old systems and the old structures, but they allowed enough individualism and enough internal debate to cope 
with some of this change in the early 80s. And that was important because it, it, it ensured the survival for the next 20 years of, of these two big parties. <clears throat> but in doing so, they, they, they faced so many changes to society that were outside their control. And it's just amazing now how we look at the impact women had at this period because women were suddenly in the workforce women were getting an education i mean it seems bizarre now but it just wasn't something that was considered in society to that point but the more educated women became the more irish society began to change and the more influence women had the more society began to become fairer to began to question things the workforce was changing family friendly workforce and all those things are going to become something in the years ahead men are going to benefit hugely from some of the things that women are going to campaign for as they demand within a new workforce they have a totally different perspective on this and a more positive one in terms of what can be delivered in the society and and it's amazing to see how that impact is suddenly creeping in. And then weirdly enough, I suppose for all of us, there's no denying that at the heart of everything in the middle, in the in the early eighties, and what begins to kick on through right throughout the eighties, you know what, sex, that's what it's about here too. People feeling it's not wrong to have sex so we're going to see a lot of this we're going to see things about contraception you're going to see things about abortion you're going to see things in in major social debates but you know what a lot of it keeps coming back to is an old opinion that sex is bad premarital sex is bad you know all of that kind of attitude begins to break down here and people begin to think you know what sex may not be that bad a thing and maybe it's fun and why not? Uh, you know, why are we so hung up about it? And weirdly, in politics, although in the early 80s, people didn't like even talking about things like sex, this is going to hurt the political parties and hurt their, their approach to things socially because they have to grapple with this topic. They have to grapple with a change where society is no longer feeling quite as hung up about sex. And that means if they're not hung up about sex, they're not hung up about some of the things that result from sex, such as that we have to have very close-knit families, that you can't have divorce, that you can't be, have another partner, that you can't remarry, that you, you, you uh, might have to have an abortion. All of those things begin to come from where your starting point is probably on the sex question. Uh, I find that bizarre. I find it bizarre because we all just think of, you know, sex is just something that, that does, it, does it influence all our politics and decisions and you think, no. And then you think, yeah, it does. And, and the attitudes to it have such a, a, a huge impact in Ireland. Uh, so that's the environment as, as Fitzgerald manages to, to take over. Uh, and the government is forced into some really key decisions on what they're going to do. Now, Fitzgerald has always wanted to face some of those big social issues. But he's going to struggle to get to deal with most of them because he's got this massive economic problem uh, that he has to deal with in the immediate term. Uh, and just to turn very quickly, just to give a, a very brief paragraph that I think sums it up uh, in, in a book, The Course of Irish History, edited by, by Moody and, and Martin. Uh, they summarise it very quickly as 
Quote, Fitzgerald saw the main problem facing his government as the economic crisis. Hahi, hoping that the depression which set in in 1979 will be short, have maintained the levels of public expenditure by borrowing the necessary funds, much of it from abroad. But the depression continued, and the country's external indebtedness increased by leaps and bounds. By the end of the 1981 uh, by the end of 1981, the total public sector foreign debt reached 4.8 billion, or almost half the gross national product. Unquote. This was a massive, massive debt being carried by the country. And again, it comes from this thing of, of it being repeated time and time again by governments that we can borrow. We can borrow to avoid the tough decisions. And the Department of Finance is getting a bit fed up with all this. Uh, it's getting a little bit annoyed that so much is being ignored uh, in the financial uh, respect. Turn to Noel Whelan, who, who also summarised this um, uh, in, in his book, his history of, of Fianna Fáil. And he says, uh, quote, Fine Gael had promised tax cuts during the 1981 election campaign, but the disastrous fiscal position it and the Labour Party found when they entered office meant that instead they had to introduce a harsh emergency budget in July. The steps to control the spiralling national finances announced by the new Minister for Finance, John Bruton, included an embargo on recruitment to the public service, the introduction of a bank levy and an increase in value-added-on tax from 10 to 15 percent, unquote. Now, just for a moment, pause and think here. You've just come out of an election. You're the electorate in 1981. You have had a decade of difficulty and hardship and problems and, and, and an economy that's not going anywhere. Yes, the spending's out of control, but nobody can get control of it. What are we doing as a country? Hahi came in, said he was doing stuff. You've had the 77 manifesto. Yeah, but nothing's getting better. Unemployment's going up. Debt is going up. Problems happening. Fine Gael say, look, we can cut your taxes and that'll get things going. They come in and then suddenly they're only in the door. This isn't like six or 12 months or a year in, this is in the door. They, they June and then in July, they introduce a budget that is putting in bank levies. It's stopping recruitment to the public service, which was one of the main areas where people were hoping to get a job uh, in Ireland at this area uh, at this time. And they're going to increase VAT from 10 to 15%. That's a hefty increase. That's going to affect businesses. It's going to affect stores. It's going to affect jobs. It's going to affect the cost of goods and services that you're buying in the shops. Well, you're going to peel pretty quickly. Like, these guys are a disaster. This is the exact opposite of everything they've said they've done. But, but you know what? Finnegal don't have an option here. They are really, really tied up. In, in trying to deal with what they now see is, oh, we got this badly wrong. We didn't realise that things were going to be quite like this when we came in. <clears throat> now, at least they have decided we're trying to do something right here. However, in terms of increasing taxes, they're still not really dealing with spending. 
So it's the same old problem when it comes in, because Fianna Fáil have been doing this too since 77. It's not like Fianna Fáil were doing nothing, but Fianna Fáil also were going along with this kind of idea of increase the taxes. Uh, we can't reduce the spending because that's going to hurt and it's going to cut things out. But these increased taxes are all hurting people too. And they're not getting control of spending. And this government too starts to come in with an emergency budget. They are measures that are being forced by the Department of Finance. Politicians are struggling to have any control here. And even at that, they're struggling to show that they have any sense of... Uh, that they have any sense really here of, of Fianna Fáil or, or, or Fianna Gael, a real leading politician that can interact with the Department of Finance and say, right, let's get ahead of things. That doesn't happen. Um, it doesn't happen at all. And and it's it's one of the really frustrating things as you look back at this period, that lack of, you know, simply standing up and going, we have to do this and do it quickly. But of course, that's easier said now at this juncture when we're looking back at it. Um, it was It was a difficult time. Uh, for, for so many people. And a difficult time within Fianna Fáil as well on the other side because it's not all going easy for them. But let's step back a second and just talk about this organisationally and who were the big figures and what were the big figures that, that, that had changed things because Fianna Fáil had lost the election. So maybe now... You could look over the, the maybe, maybe Fine Gael could be looking over uh, at the opposition and saying, right, well, Hahi at least knows what we face. Um, so maybe we're all going to get a sense of, OK, this is what the country needs and we all understand it. Uh, that that doesn't happen, though, either, um, because, of course, you've got to remember Hahi, this is unfinished business now. He had intended coming back in here with his majority. Uh, that hasn't happened. And he's, he's dismissive of, of this government coming in to do things. And he has a different view of politics. These guys, he is not kind of, he's in, the, this is a game that has to be played and there has rules that go with it and you have to be ruthless and you have to be, go out and you have, there are certain things you have to do to win because the public are not sitting back waiting for you to be Mr Nice Guy the public do not vote in the guy who says well I'm going to do all kinds of horrible tough things to you or I'm going to support somebody else doing all kinds of horrible tough things to you because tough medicine is necessary no he believes look the electorate want one thing and that's to be told what they need to be told and if you get the majority then you can do something perhaps but without that this is all pointless and he's actually thinking about getting back to government. But interestingly, again, in, in Tim Ryan's book, Mara PJ, he talks about the mood of Hahi and maybe uh, how how Hahi doesn't really have a sense at this point even that, that this, this election has mattered. So he says, uh, quote, He simply refused to believe that he had lost the election and seemed to regard himself as heading some sort of cabinet in exile. It was then you realised that his grip on reality was not all that strong, to put it mildly. He could not see that a lot of problems were his own damn fault. And if we reported on them, then that's surely what we were to do, Dick Walsh said as he recounted uh, his encounters with Hahi. Dick Walsh believes that part of Hahi's problem was that much of the glitter expected of him in the early 1980s had failed to materialise. Wherever he went, it had to be created. Quoting Dick Walsh here, 
I remember him once addressing the United Nations in New York. When he finished, the delegates got up and applauded. Back in the hotel, Hahi was scarcely sitting down, but was rather levitating. They loved me. They loved me, he kept repeating. Someone pointed out to him that they do this for everybody. In the same way the Continental men kiss when they meet, delegates to the UNO applaud when a guest has addressed them, but it does not mean that they were even awake while it was being delivered. Hi and Dick Walsh seem to have a permanent difficulty in communicating. Even at Christmas, the season of goodwill, when the Taoiseach was do- doling out presents and bottles of booze, Walsh says, when you were at the receiving it, you were made to feel he was somehow rather reluctant to give you the thing. He would put it on a sideboard and gradually ease it towards you with the back of his hand. Eventually you'd have to reach out and grab it before it fell off the table. All the time he would carry on a very stilted conversation instead of having a relationship with people and talking normally. He was always conscious of who he was and who you were. Unquote. There you get a sense from, from Tim Ryan's book there as he, he's quoting Dick Walsh. Dick Walsh being a very senior political correspondent at the time. And this is this in politics, this interaction has to go on. And you can see that lack of relationship, that, that lack of trust. He doesn't really get having to do with it. Everything is a plot to get him. Everything is something dangerous. There's, there isn't an openness there. Everything is always a move on a chessboard. Everything is an image that's carefully crafted of who and what he is. Um, now, on the other side, you have Peter Prendergast, who has helped Fine Gael to reshape itself. And, and he has very much helped to reshape Fitzgerald as, you know, this new figure within Fine Gael. And one of the things that's going to happen here is that when people talk about the difference between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael and how Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael maybe don't look all that different, it actually begins to maybe get worse, if you like, at this point, because Fitzgerald starts to lead Fine Gael in, in a slightly more left of centre uh, approach, which of course used to be Fianna Fáil's territory. Um, but, you know, okay, they all have the, the issues and Fianna Fáil has now had long issues with Catholic conservatism and, and social issues, but has this working class kind of vote mentality. Um, Fitzgerald is going to try to eat into that and Peter Prendergast helps him to eat into that uh, quite a bit in the in this period. And a large part of that is, is by working on social issues and reshaping Garrett as, as this social champion. Um, and again, when we're talking about uh, this, uh, Tim Ryan and his book Mara PJ, talks about the relationship of both PJ Mara and Peter Prendergast uh, in this. Uh, quote, both Mara and Prendergast shared a common devotion to their respective leaders. A great dislike of Peter's was one Charles Hahi, says Irish Times political correspondent John Cooney, who succeeded Dick Walsh. He shared Garrett's view that it would be dangerous, if not disastrous, for the Irish economy were Fianna Fáil to return to power. There emerged a certain amount of apprehension within the Fine Gael camp at the amount of inroads Mara was making and gaining popularity with the political correspondence. He was giving Hahi a credibility that they were persistently trying to deny. I got to know Peter quite well, says PJ. He was a cold-blooded fish but he didn't carry any particular baggage. He didn't like Hahi very much, but we used to meet from time to time for a chat and an occasional beer. Today, Mara argues that Hahi would probably have done better had he made himself more available to the political correspondence. 
But failing that, PJ resolved to be available night and day to answer queries and deal with problems political and journalistic. Unquote. Again, there you're seeing just how sometimes the advisors and the people shaping it behind, because there was a lot of this needed to go on. And this is new to politics. There was a time before that that politi- politicians were just politicians. I mean, De Valera had an image that has his own, but, but you know, De Valera always owned his image. And, and Lamas came, more pragmatic approach. But again, it's just Lamas and even Lynch, Cosgrave, there was certainly some creation of image and some myth about all of them, but not necessarily to the same degree that you're seeing here. And that begins that begins to really challenge so much of what we understood about politics at that point, because now what you're being presented as mass media is now becoming more widely available all the time, you begin to see politicians change and shift in terms of just how they approach things and in terms of their own understandings of how important that image is and they turn to people to help craft particular images on particular things that gives them a sense of control over the body politic. Interestingly though, on the other side, Fitzgerald adds something of a slightly different approach to Hahi. And in conversation with, with Katie Hannon for, for her book, the, the Naked Politician, Fitzgerald talks about his time as Taoiseach. And of course, he was Taoiseach later up till, till um, 1987. But um, just to, to quote from that uh, book by Katie Hannon, quote, I don't think I can say that I enjoyed being Taoiseach. I felt there was a job to do and it was better that I should be there to do it than not. Fitzgerald felt delighted to be elected Taoiseach, quote, until I got my seal of office and was told the country's bankrupt. That wasn't a good moment. I didn't realise quite how difficult it would be. I was confident that we could solve the problems, which we only partly did. I wouldn't say I'm a clever tactician at all. Not at all. I make mistakes, but I've always had a long-term strategy. I tended to be more strategic and occasionally make mistakes on tactics. Bertie is great at tactics, but I'm not sure what the strategy is. I got thrown out and he'll get thrown out too eventually. He believes that he helped that he wasn't egotistical about his position. I don't get too upset about things. I don't worry about me particularly. If you're doing what you think is right, the right thing, acting reasonably, sensibly, if you did something you shouldn't do or did something really stupid unnecessarily, which caused immense damage, you'd be upset about it. But I did nothing perhaps totally disastrous on the whole. I never worry. His secret? You see, politics was a phase. I don't want to be there forever. There were other things in my life to do. I was quite happy to move on out of it at the end. It wasn't a life ambition to end up in politics. Unquote. Now... There's an important lesson, I think, there, because it's something I refer to time and time again in politics, that there's there's a trap that happens when you get into politics, which is, I've got to be here. This is my life's ambition. This is everything. And sometimes it does cloud your judgment because you start to act, even though you think in the short term, this isn't me, this isn't what I want to do, but this is what I need to do to be in power. There is a wonderful power and behind politicians who are not afraid to walk away. Politicians who do see 
politics as a phase, as something that's happening them now. But you know what, if it's gone and if I'm, you know, kicked out and I lose an election and that I go on and I do other things or I have other achievements in life, politics does not define me. That is a powerful politician because that politician is not afraid to walk away. Um, and perhaps, you know, that was one of Gareth Fitzgerald's strengths, particularly within Fine Gael, a party that he had found that was really on the back foot and struggling to modernise. Now, he does a lot of modernising of Fine Gael. And, and, and look, I know there's people here going to say to me, oh, well, you know, the problems of the governments. We'll be dealing with later podcasts of problems of, of Fitzgerald's governments and, and failure to take decisions and so on. Yes. But in reality, he has a huge influence on Fine Gael and that changes Irish politics because he, he, he changes Fine Gael radically in, in internally, externally, how it looks. And a lot of that is because he wasn't afraid. He, he kind of did feel, yeah, I'll be here for a while and they will kick me out, but I'll do what I do in it. And, and that's powerful in politics because it does stop that kind of thing. Hahi, on the other hand, comes across as somebody time and time again here who actually has an idea of what he needs to do. And we'll talk about this as we go through future elections. He, he does have an idea of what's necessary. He does have a reputation. A large part of why that ends up in tatters is because he's unable to detach himself from his need to be in politics. He's unable to say, this is it, on this I stand or fall, and if you don't like me, I walk away and you lose Charlie. That's not where he's ever going to be. Um, and, and, and he begins to, at this time too, how he begins to face some of those problems for that very reason. Uh, to go back to, to John Lee, quote, how he faced his own problems in opposition. He had failed to either reconcile or rout his enemies in the party. With his reputation for efficiency tarnished, he found himself increasingly obliged to rely on his guile, on his skill as an operator, rather than his ability as an achiever. In December 1981, one of his original supporters, Charlie McCreevy, attacked him in a newspaper interview. Now you begin to see something happening here. He's lost the election. Does that open up? Does that open up problems? And one of his supporters, Charlie McCreevy, is seen as suddenly attacking him on, on these issues and beginning to say to him, hold on, we're not happy with what you've done here. Um, and, and, and to quote a little bit from, from Noel Whelan about this time. Over these months, he held a series of meetings with critics as part of an effort to heal party divisions. This led to a few surprises. But in the new front bench, when it was finally announced in January 1982, the most startling of which was the naming of Martin O'Donoghue as the party's new spokesperson on finance. Unquote. Martin O'Donoghue? The architect of the, the 77, who he has, has, has put out, but Martin O'Donoghue has now come back, and Martin O'Donoghue is very much one of the voices now that says, we do need to tackle spending now. Okay, he's, he's saying like, that, that we did. Yeah, O'Donoghue will always say it was a reasonable plan to try and pump prime the economy, but given the world situation, it didn't work. Uh, so he's back now, and he does want to tackle spending. But Hahi's brought him back, and that was startling. This is a real effort. This shows you how Hahi began to feel. Hold on a minute now. Having lost this election, maybe I'm not as strong as I thought. And he now seeks to start healing division and wounds. He brings O'Donoghue back. This is a guy he sent two dead ducks to in a package when he sacked him. Now he's bringing him back. 
this is a kind of division that's that's racking Fianna Fáil um, and, and the, the, the level of indecision that they're facing. But of course, they are trying desperately to come to terms with something and what is it that they want to do. Uh, and again, it's all about whether or not they're going to support Fine Gael's moves on, on the economy. Um, but that all gets a little bit clouded. Um, again, return to, to, to Noel Whelan and what he says on, on this period. But before and after the reshuffle, the front bench struggled with the question of what the party's attitude should be to the Fitzgerald government's measures to tackle the public finances. Hahi had been dismissive of suggestions from economic commentators that the coalition government that tough actions needed to be taken. He had attacked John Bruton's emergency budget as both unnecessary and deflationary. Not only O'Donoghue, O'Malley and Collie, but also Reynolds and McSharry were among those urging Hahi to accept the need to get public finances under control. Within weeks of his new appointment, O'Donoghue led for the party in the Dáil debate on Bruton's second budget and accepted that some corrective action was needed. Indeed, the appointment of O'Donoghue as finance spokesperson suggested that Hahi was signing up to a more responsible approach, but his public utterances, he continued to confuse the party position. Unquote. So here you see the division that, that the entire thing has, has began to, to, to creep up on the parties. You have a difficulty of Fine Gael, um, who who have come in and had to break promises and in this modernising process are struggling with trying to adapt to the economic situation. On the other hand, you have all of these problems from Fianna Fáil on what should we be doing. And you can see the short-termism here, as I say, of Hahi. In, in 79, he's brought in as leader because they wanted him. Look, Lynch hasn't got this. Bring Hahi in. Hahi doesn't actually deliver in 79 to 81. And that upsets a few of his supporters. Um, They go out, they lose the election. But many of these now know, look, we know what the situation is. We know we have to sort out spending. Hahi doesn't seem to want to do that, though, because he knows electorally, he doesn't see the gain on it and he must win the next election. That's what's driving him. On the other hand, he now is a series. He's Martin O'Donoghue, Collie, O'Malley. They're all people who are saying, <laughs> they've said for some time, you have to get corrective action. He now has criticism coming from the likes of Charlie McCreevy, who have been one of his stalwart supporters. Reynolds and McSharry, who have now become two of the big, big guns in, in that, that Fianna Fáil uh, front bench, they're saying, we've got to start, Charlie, you can't do this. You have got to support corrective action on the economy. And how he seems to, to struggle somewhat to really want to deal with that, to really want to face up to it. And, and he's being forced and pulled by the party in order to do that. Um, and that's, that's one of those things that begins to change, I suppose, the body politic in, in it, that maybe there's a sense of, of something happening here that we need to get control of. And yet, on another, it's a sign of just how, just how much short-term thinking was still going on here. Now, Gareth Fitzgerald is doing a very good job of managing to keep, certainly, Fine Gael together and this even in terms of the, the, the fact that they're breaking their promises here. He's managing to keep things together. Uh, and, and kind of, But he is keeping one eye across the doll on Fianna Fáil because they're, what they do matters. Um, 
it matters to the stability of, of his government that depends on independence, it could be brought down at any point. He knows that just very little pressure will bring it down. Um, and to quote uh, Albert Reynolds when, when he talks of, of this period uh, and, and maybe gives a sense of where this begins to, to go. Quote, when Charlie Hahi in opposition attacked the coalition's approach to tackling the national debt by accusing it of being deflationary and monetarist, he earned the anger of one of his erstwhile supporters, the Kildare TD and close colleague of mine, Charlie McCreevy. He spoke out in an article in the Sunday Tribune, voicing his disillusionment with his leader's views on the economy. Because of this, McCreevy lost the Fianna Fáil whip and became independent for a time. But he was not the only one who was becoming wary of Charlie Hahi and his leadership. When the general election was called for February 82, McCreevy was automatically nominated as a Fianna Fáil candidate for Kildare, which meant he did not have to reapply the party whip. However, his show of dissent had highlighted the damaged profile of the party leader and the difficulties we faced in persuading the public and certain members of the party of Hahi's appeal and of our confidence in him as a future Taoiseach, unquote. Now, that's just interesting in terms of, you know, how he now has been damaged here and damaged by this. And, and some of his key players are losing confidence in his ability to actually deliver because they're beginning to say, you know what, don't think Charlie's got it here. Uh, Charlie needs to, to, to change tack and Charlie doesn't want to change tack. Um. What what had happened here? Uh, Charlie McCreevy. Charlie McCreevy was one of those group who had helped to bring Hahi to power. Uh, and he brought him to power because he didn't believe in this 77 manifesto. He didn't believe in the, the policies that were being implemented after it. <clears throat> McCreevy is in the Fianna Fáil spectrum. He was Republican, but he was right wing in economic thinking. And McCreevy does not agree with letting debt and spending get out of all control. Uh, he doesn't believe that's good for anybody. Be you rich, poor, anything else, the economy was going south fast and McCreevy is one of the people who believes we have to deal with this. Um, at this point, one of the few voices that speaks out. Uh, turning around here to, to Dick Walsh and his uh, account of, of what happened for McCreevy, quote, Charlie McCreevy, one of the most energetic Hahiites in the campaign against Lynch. In an interview with Geraldine Kennedy, then political correspondent of the Sunday Tribune, was severely critical of politics and politicians generally, and of Hahi in particular. The main target of his attack was the irresponsibility of all sides in dealing with the nation's finances. But McCreevy was also plainly disillusioned with Hahi, whose refusal to come to grips with his defeat in 1981, was causing serious issues. Unquote. Now, again, you see the cracks appearing here. McCreevy has obviously... Now, for, again, remember, this is a very disciplined Fianna Fáil. And, and at this point, for McCreevy to feel that he has to do this does point very quickly into an issue that, that he is... He's lost, you know, and there's no convincing him at this stage. Uh, he was a fervent supporter of his. Now it's gone. And why was that? Uh, why? How do you get to that level where you feel you, it's, you're going to go out and do it in the media? Which, of course, moves for, for expelling him from the party. Oh, he's furious. He should be kicked out. Uh, but McCreevy says, well, no, you're not kicking me out. I'm resigning and resigns. And, of course, then he's selected as a candidate in the subsequent general election a short while later. So... <clears throat> 
these kind of things they they come back to haunt you time and time again in in, in what you do and, and how you say them but Certainly McCreevy is going to spend the rest of his career, uh, at least for, for the next decade, in what seems like oblivion. And and it was a career-ending move uh, for Charlie McCreevy. He decides to speak up for the economy. He decides to speak up and say, look, politicians are not getting... There's nothing wrong with McCreevy saying here. I mean, it's the truth. Successive governments have failed for the previous decade to deal with any of this. Um... And politicians generally do deserve um, a huge amount of criticism for it. But equally, he's saying, right now, you have to land that at the feet of Charles Hockey, um, because he was the one we thought was going to change it, and, and he hasn't done it. Uh, that kind of, of the ability to, to do that is is brave at this point in time, because it is, as I say, career-ending. And, and after that moment, it would seem that that was going to be perhaps... Charlie McCreevy's sole contribution to Irish politics. Uh, that moment, that voice speaking up on it. Because at this time, saying something like that was career-ending. Um, now, to turn around to a wider view, maybe, of, of what was the other side of that. So what might the Hahi view of? Well, Martin Manser wrote um, a, a piece on Charles Hahi. And, and to quote maybe just a paragraph from that, that maybe touches on some of the partisan beliefs and, and why they were angry with, with Fitzgerald. Um, uh, just a quote from that. Quote, Gareth Fitzgerald went on an economic crusade in which Fianna Fáil's economic record since 1977, which was certainly open to criticism, but even more its intentions, were absurdly exaggerated and extrapolated to justify the swinging tax increases introduced by the Fine Gael Labour Coalition, instead of more obvious and less damaging reductions in the alleged overspending of their predecessors. He certainly ignored his own and his party's role in popularising debt deficit financing in the early years of the National Coalition. He established the problem of the deficit in the public mind, but where tackling such problems effectively ought to raise confidence, the opposite was the result achieved between 81 and 86. Charles Hahi blossomed as a ruthlessly effective and aggressive leader of the opposition. With the collapse of its tax reform platform and a badly launched constitutional crusade which alienated those who were proud of Ireland's record as an independent country and who resented any comparison with the record of unionists in Northern Ireland, the first Fine Gael Labour coalition lasted only seven months. So began an extraordinary and fateful year of 1982 which saw two general elections. Charles Hahi would have been willing to form an administration without a general election, something that did not happen till late 1994. But attempting to communicate that to President Hillary was subsequently represented by Fitzgerald as something reprehensible and was used by him with devastating effect to damage Brian Lenehan's candidature for the presidency in 1990. Unquote. OK, now we're moving along here. We're getting into the, the meat and drink of this uh, here. So so this is really what's at the heart of it. That Fine Gael have come in and now Fine Gael have laid complete and total blame. So this partisanship going on. You know that quote I made from, from Gareth Fitzgerald earlier where he says it quite clearly. It's my predecessors who've left me with this mess. The partisanship here is astounding because nobody's able to stand up and admit, look, We've all mucked up quite a bit here. And sure, the 77 Manifesto has been the petrol on the fire. There's no doubting that. But at this stage, 
Fine Gael have continually now decided, well, look, we've been in this mess. And you can understand, they send these guys through this on. They, they took an election from us in 77. They're not willing to say, okay, you thought you were pump priming and you're introducing a stimulus package. No, they say, you guys bought an election, you bought it falsely, and that is what we're going to make you suffer for because now you've completely destroyed the economy. And they are saying that quite openly. Now, Fianna Fáil, on the other hand, is saying, look, the 77 manifesto may have been wrong, but it had a good intention at the back of it. And you know what? If we've destroyed the economy, yes, we've played a partner, but you guys did too, because you guys were no great shakes right before that. And this whole bipartisan debate keeps revolving around the same thing time and time again. Who is at fault? It's your fault. It's your fault. It's your fault. And that's where McCreevy begins to come in and say, they're all they're all a bit of a disaster. But he blames Hockey in particular. That's his party leader, and that's where he sees the blame. And probably rightly so at this point. Fitzgerald has come in. And Fitzgerald at least has had the good sense not to go ahead with the election promises. To break those and go ahead with it. But at the same time, he's not dealing with the issue either. Certainly not dealing with the spending side of it. And Fianna Fáil is saying, look, you guys are, are failing too. And you can see the bitterness there, uh, I suppose, in, in, in the words of Martin Manzer as he writes that. That, you know, look, these guys were, were no angels here either. And they were attacking us all the time. But because of that... Because of that, that that debate between them, there's no hope of this actually dealing with the economic issue. Now, you have these independent TDs who have now been forced into a situation where they have to agree something of epic proportions for them, which is always difficult for an independent because an independent is expected to do things slightly differently they're expected to be you know oh well you'll be always fair you'll never do the wrong thing you'll never want to hurt people and look governments have to make decisions that hurt people so you end up going forward into an election that's going to come on the back of a budget because having introduced this july emergency budget having taken huge criticism from Fianna Fáil who are saying look you're, you're just increasing taxes here and that was true but you know there's nothing really brilliant on the, the alternatives from Fianna Fáil. Uh, some minor agreements that we could maybe look at certain things within it. We start to head towards a budget and getting over a budget is going to be incredibly difficult for this government and incredibly difficult for how they're going to run uh, the country and get it through and get independence to support it and whether or not there be any support from the opposition, highly unlikely. So all of this is is crowding into a, a a different sense for the 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 public of what is happening. You know, it's likely we're not going to get through this for very long, even if you get a budget through. But trying to agree that budget is becoming a real headache, uh, because they want to achieve things, they want to spend on things. There, there's there's an awful lot in the upcoming budget that they are looking to achieve, and they're 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 looking to do. I mean. One of the things, and again, the, the, this budget that's upcoming is planned, they have boosted, while they, they've implemented in, in, in July this, this tough tax-increasing budget, they have at the same time had uh, a 5% supplementary uh, increase uh, on social welfare payments. Uh, they were going to boost them by, we're hoping, by a further 25%. Um, and there was introducing several more percentage 
points on various different payments. This wasn't all about cutting or hurting. The spending side of it was still being used. Um, children's allowances uh, were, were being increased. And that was going to have to be paid for somehow. Um, the tax treatment of widows, single parents, they were going to work on that. Uh, tax allowances were going to be changed to tax credits. Uh, spouses were going to be given the right to apply for a £500 tax credit. There were lots of things going in here which were, you know, let's say positive moves, but they were costly moves. But they were spending moves. And they were going to have to be paid for by some form of taxation, which, of course, just hurts in another way. And nobody was grappling with this, that, that you can't keep the spending going up and you can't keep spending all the time um, and then saying, well, we'll just tax this and tax that because tax eventually kicks in somewhere. Where are you going to get the most of this tax from? And it becomes incredibly difficult. Uh, so we're getting ready for a budget. Now, at the same time, Political parties are preparing, preparing strongly for an election that's 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 struggling for them. Now, the Labour Party is really wrestling itself here with with so many difficult decisions. It's immediately again. And you've got to feel sorry for the Labour Party. This is the Labour Party have been back in the 70s saying the 70s will be socialist. And the 70s weren't really socialist. And then we come in and now there's spending and Labour being associated with some of these big spending governments, too. That's going to stick to them a little bit. And in truth, Labour are trying to come in every time. And, and every time they come towards government, every time they try to step in here, it seems to be they end up having to do things that maybe mightn't be considered. So so they're pushing for some of these things for the less well-off, which is, of course, spending. And, of course, they're going to be blamed by Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael over the years as well. Of course, Labour wanted that. Labour wanted the spending. But they're trying to... to to do things like whether it's social welfare, whether it's any of those those things on the left for poor in society, trying to, I suppose, prote- offer those protections while at the same time realising the economy is in a really bad state and we have to do really tough things. Some of those things seem like right-wing things um, uh, that are in there and, and that seems to go against what Labour should be standing for. So they're getting accused all the time of being just in league with Fine Gael and just going along with Fine Gael. And, and Fianna Fáil continues to portray them as these kind of Labour, well-intentioned, but hapless and useless ultimately. And, and, and that's successful from the Fianna Fáil point of view, particularly with the working class. If you want real strength in the working class, vote for Fianna Fáil and we'll go in and do our own thing. But if Labour, you're just, you're just going to be in there with Fine Gael and they're just Fine Gael going to tell them what to do. And, and, and they don't, they, they'll try to do a few little things. Good at heart, but effectively not strong enough. Uh, and that begins to infect Labour. And they find themselves yet again in a government where they're going to be asked to introduce a budget, which is going to be really, really tough budget. Um, they want to be trying to make a difference to people's lives. They do want to tackle some of the social agenda, but getting increasingly difficult. And this government is no different from that perspective for them. So... What is it that the parties are doing as they prepare just to give? Because somebody said to me last week, um, you know, when we, we did our last podcast, how do these parties really organise? And I just want to diverge for a moment to tell you a little bit about how the parties organise for Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. Um, because at this stage, as I say, they had swapped some of their organisation. And it's important maybe to give some context if you, if you haven't been in a political party. And, and someone said to me during the week that they hadn't been. They like politics, but they haven't been 
fascinated by how it might actually work on the ground, particularly coming to elections, what is it they do? So an opportune moment, because I suppose in these elections, a lot of this was honed because the parties were getting opportunities to, to run their machines out every so often. Um, now, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael have, have similar um, structures, slightly maybe different in names. Fianna Fáil goes for the Irish names, which I will I will use here. Um, simply because of my, I suppose, my own experience of it. But but Fine Gael then did very similar. Now, what Fine Gael were doing very well at this period in preparing for the elections is their candidate management was much stronger. Um, much stronger than Fianna Fáil at this point. In that they were getting more seats out of out of a less share of the vote because they they knew how they were getting a real sense of how to manage it. That there are too many candidates and running extra votes, you leak votes along the way. And they were managing it better and they had a little bit stronger discipline now coming into Fine Gael at this point. They needed it, but it was really strong. And we're going to see that in not so much this election, but in the following election, you see some of the, the, the evidence of that, which we'll touch on then. But essentially, um, somebody, uh, you know, I, I won't name them, but a TD once came to me in the, the midst of the, the crisis asking me for my thoughts on establishing a new political party and um, what would that involve if there were a few of them to get together and what would it be? And I took them through, you know, how, how political parties like Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael organise and they said it seems incredibly complicated. Um, and it is, but it works, or at least used to work, certainly around this era, it, it certainly worked. Um, and you see Sinn Féin trying to, to emulate it now, don't quite have the same reach as the others on the ground yet, but maybe they will in time. How does how does a political party work? Well, okay, you go to vote. So wherever you go to vote, you go to vote in a polling station. Now, every polling station has a local unit of the party assigned to it. In Fianna Fáil, they call them a common. Now, that common, and I think at this stage, Fine Gael would have referred to them as the same, but the common was... That's a small local unit, now a bit bigger in a town, but in towns you will have possibly several polling booths um, where you may need several common uh, in order to oversee that. So the common is responsible for that polling booth. Now, how does the common organise? Well, like any small committee, it has its group there. It, it organises to do certain activities. At all points, the common will usually arrange a social, a gathering, because what's important at this level of the parties is that they are out there socially gathering. They're, they're joining with each other. These people that you go to, what's happened, and sometimes it's happened in modern politics, uh, but what they knew back then was that politics, it's very little about policy. You join something because it's fun. And when you joined your common, your common was busy organising. It could be a dinner dance, it could be a social in the pub, a fundraiser or something. But you were busy doing that. And you were hanging out with these people. These people weren't just the people you met for politics and then went out with your friends. They were your friends. They become the group you socialise with. You're busy doing things with them, like organising for a social, a fundraiser or an event in your local pub, for your local common. It keeps you busy. It keeps an activity going. You also attend the functions of other commons. There's always something going on on the ground. There's always some bit of a gig to be attended, a dinner dance, a speech by a politician, whatever it is, a table quiz, something. But you're always out and you're always organising and you're always... It keeps them busy because you've got to keep these common members busy. Between elections, 
it can get boring unless you're doing something. So having your annual function, having something there to do, some little fundraisers, tickets, draws, all that kind of stuff keeps it busy, keeps activity up. And most importantly, keeps all of those common members socializing with each other. Now, usually within the common, you have what's ward bosses. Well, ward bosses, easier maybe to understand in the urban sense on these, each estate or each street would have somebody assigned to it and say, you look after them couple of streets. And that person knows exactly and is able to report into the common who's voting what way on our street. Who are the houses we've got to look at? Who are the houses that have had issues and problems? And they spend all this time gathering that intelligence continually. In rural areas, same kind of thing. Areas of a parish, areas, groups of houses where you're responsible for them. Find out of them, keep in touch with them over the time. Always gather up who's upset about something, who hasn't got a job, who's, you know brothers emigrated to America and what kind of issues they have. So as you know, when we eventually come to Canvas, we're already well ahead of these people. We already have somebody local on the ground embedded in the community who knows and understands it. And the common features all of that information, gathers it up by polling booth and is able to say, we know and understand everybody in this polling booth and everybody has somebody assigned to them to understand that area. From the common, above that sits what's called a Corla Canther. Now, the Corla Canther is based on the local electoral area. So, you know, when you go through your local elections, you'll know that there's a, 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 the candidates you vote for in the, the local elections in your particular area. The Corla Canther gathers representatives from each of those commons. And those people go in there and begin to talk about something a little bit wider, a little bit. Now, here you don't see... It's not that they get into much more policy, but they get into a little bit of discussion of what are the areas. It's really a support mechanism for county councillors at this point. The county councillors manage to find a strategy in this. They manage to find some debate between themselves. Um, they manage to be able to find out from other areas, what do I need to do over there? It's, again, intelligence gathering as to what's going on right around that local electoral area and provides a real wealth of information for the county councillors and support for them when they need to canvas, when they need to go out, where they need to go. And again, most importantly, the Corley Cantor too will have its social functions where all the councillors are brought in, where the wider groups and all the commons are brought in and everybody again socialises. So you have a regular calendar of stuff going on that's always there, keeping you involved, keeping you friendly with people, reasserting the fact that you're all part of this family. Now, above the Corla Cantor sits your Corla Dáil Cantor. A Corla Dáil Cantor is, differs some different areas because a Corla Dáil Cantor is essentially a constituency level machine. However, you may end up with two Corla Dáil Cantors in a constituency where you have two counties. So, for instance, Westmead would have a Corla Dáil Cantor, so would Longford, because it gets too broad if you have one for the entire constituency. So you look at the area you've got, the county. Each county would at least have. Now in Dublin, where you have, uh, say, constituencies, the Corla Dáil Cantor would be the constituency um, because that's just simpler. But again, that Corla Dáil, they were there to support. That is usually the kitchen cabinet of the TD. They're the people who ensure that the TD is elected. They're usually the trusted confidants and conciliaries of the TD. They're the inner sanctum who are probably talking to the TD on an ongoing basis, 
filing back all the intelligence that's needed on the ground and also probably giving the TD some advice on what they need to do nationally within Parliament. And of course, the TD is coming back all the time. That's that's the power base. So the TD is always filtering back the power and the information. And therefore, some of the people at Corla Dole Cantor level, depending on who the TD is, and their level of seniority, be it a cabinet minister or even a Taoiseach, can indeed be some of the most influential people in the country if their TD happens to be an influential TD because those people now have the link and they are the person who sits down with the TD and they plot and chart the course and they're the person who's made this career. So they're all invested in the TD's career. They're all invested in this power base. We're all invested in the influence you have. And it is a club because you can become quite powerful without ever anybody knowing who you are because you're all interested in the same game. And one person's career, one man or woman's career is not just the career of that politician. It is usually a combined project of so many people right across those commons, Corla Canthers and Corla Dole Canthers who come together and it's their project. That career is their project. Their advice is to keep that person there because that person's gone, they lose the influence. So the career isn't an individual career. It's it's a career of, of many different people ensuring that the influence is kept uh, and, and that the, the programme works and they're sticking to the policies that people on the ground will, will want. But that structure then allows them over that Corridor Cantor, they would have delegates that go to a national executive. And national executives then usually have various ways of getting onto them. Some are directly elected by members, some of them from maybe youth groups, women's groups, whatever else over the years has been different mechanisms in them. But the national executive then sits at the top meeting maybe monthly with the party leader and senior ministerial or elected figures like the, the secretary of the party and so on all there working with it. Now, separate to that, you have national headquarters. You sit out and they too bring all of this in together. Now, what Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil did was to move away from a system, I suppose, in the late 70s, where there was this direct structure, if you like, to party leader, to insert party headquarters above that and put them kind of in control of a lot of those Cummins, Corla Canthers, Corla Dáil Canthers. And they needed that because without that control, they would select and do And you had to give them guidance as to what the impacts of what they were doing would be at a national level. You had to give them insights into the better research and study. And Fine Gael do this to, to great effect in terms of candidates and getting return for votes by stepping in at this point and saying to their people on the ground, hold on, this is the candidates we need to run and these are the people we need here and this is the numbers we need. Because without that... You get these kind of people vo- voting on the belief of localism rather than a belief of what's actual good political science. And, and, and you have to marry those two things uh, because there is, is thinking that has to come into it. But that's what you have. So if you get a sense of what's going on in the 80s, you have two very vibrant political organisations who have now got their headquarters in there, able to provide that real authoritative insight into how the party should be run and electoral and science and all of that kind of stuff. Married with very strong organisations that are out there, they're continually having functions because they're continually fundraising. It is breaking the banks of many of these politicians. And let's just remember... You know, some of these politicians of 81, they're now facing into another election in 82. You need a lot of money to get elected. People think parties pay you for this. They don't. The candidates don't get money back for this. 
you know, you go into debt to get elected and you pay that debt back by a bank loan or remortgaging, whatever it is, that's how you get elected. You know, some people have to think, oh, you know, when you run for Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael or Labour or Sinn Féin, don't the party just pay you for your posters and for your expenses? And no, they don't. And and if you get to a certain point now, at this stage, it was a case that you, you, you lodged a deposit in the early 80s. And if you didn't get elected, you lost the deposit. Now we have an electoral expenses thing, which gives you some expenses back. But again, you spend an awful lot more than is ever actually going to be accounted for here and is ever going to be uh, repaid back to you. So in order to be a TD, you go into debt. That's the same in the modern age. One of the things I'm just going to note here is that many people are running elections here some winning some losing 81 to 82 some are going into quite a lot of debt uh these elections are expensive business that's going to have a kick-on effect because some of them are going to come up with some very creative ways for how they're going to manage that debt and how they're going to pay it off uh that's going to have big implications for politics decades into the future However, enough to note for now that on one level, it should be noted when these elections kick off here, they're expensive and people are going to go into debt and the system isn't even as robust as we have today. And even today, it's not that great, but back then, even worse. And and it's it's a really tough business when you're you're there and you're spending that money because you don't do this cheaply. It is not an easy, accessible game in politics to get into, at least not in our system. It costs a lot of money to actually run. Um and it's often been said to me it's a rich man's game and, and in many respects it is, uh, because you, you have to be willing to take on that debt. So that's just an overview of, of, of maybe how well these parties were organised and structured and they were having their members on the ground. So they're eager and willing to go. They're, they're ready for elections at any point, but they're going to get them. They're going to get them very quickly uh, in succession because Fine Gael now have this issue with the budget. How are we going to end up fighting this election? What are we going to do? Well, look, at we're going to have to, to, to come up with something that the, 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 the country can, can withstand uh, in terms of the budget. But that's not going to be quite as easy as they might have hoped. Um, because one of the things they, they, they run into is just how difficult independents find some of these decisions. Um, and just to touch on um, the, the Noel Whelan's account again of this, uh, it gives it a good overview of what begins to happen here. Quote, Bruton's 1982 budget included a proposal to reduce food subsidies and to impose VAT on children's shoes. Among those on whom the government relied for its slim majority was the Limerick socialist Jim Kemmy, who was appalled at these proposals and was not persuaded by Fitzgerald's contention that unless the tax was extended to children's shoes, women with small feet could evade it. Kemi voted that night against the initial budget motions, as did the Workers' Party deputies, with the result that Fitzgerald's first government became the shortest in the history of the state. Unquote. So, they're going to have a budget. They're going to try and deal with some of those issues. As I say, they've got quite a lot of spending in here, but they're going to say, right, okay, how... how how do we get a few taxes on this? Those taxes 
are going to become unpopular really, really quickly. Uh, and are going to become unpopular before they even get a budget through. They're, they're relying on a socialist uh, TD to try and, and get this through. That's going to be highly unlikely. It's going to really struggle because of what are these broken promises that, that they're seeing at the heart of this. So faced with this decision, um, they get ready to go in to uh, Dole Chamber for a budget and, and all the negotiations that go on in the background of this. And Fianna Fáil here suddenly sends blood. This could happen. We could we could easily get this. We could we could manage to get these guys out of government here. We could have the election we wanted. And and as I say, that unfinished business is where it begins to to you get that sense from Fianna Fáil. If only we can get in here, we'll manage to win this election. And if we do, this is going to be one of our strongest elections we can get the majority and then we'll deal with the issues as they have to be so Fianna Fáil are, are, are quite excited over it um now on the other hand Gareth Fitzgerald still thinks he can manage to get this through um and 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 just going to quote what what Gareth Fitzgerald says as he was recounting at the time because the, again, there's, there's this thing comes in, it's about the vat on children's shoes. And, and Gareth Fitzgerald contends that, that that isn't the case. He 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 says that it wasn't all about the children's shoes. However, many others disagreed with that. Um, so so again, uh, let me let me first give you like John Lee uh, again, who, who wrote the account of, of this. And he says, um, the resulting furor in Fianna Fáil was soon overshadowed by a cabinet-owned goal. Fitzgerald fell when Bruton's January budget was defeated. Independents, on whom support the government had hitherto been able to rely, voted against a politically inept imposition of value-added tax on children's clothing and footwear on the 27th of January 1982. Unquote. Now, that's what we've always said is, and I think that's what people say, the vast on children's shoes. And why did this seem an issue? Again, if we take it on that issue, it was a big issue for many people who were of a socialist disposition. Many people who saw people suffering. What are we doing here? Why are we forced at this point into adding a burden on, on children's clothes and things which are essential? Now, however, Fitzgerald does contend that that isn't true. Um, and quote from Gareth Fitzgerald. Both I and my Fine Gael and Labour colleagues believed that the two socialist deputies, Noel Brown and Jim Kemmy, upon whom our Dáil majority depended, would be likely to support what would be the most radical and socially progressive, as well as the toughest budget, in the history of the state. Prior to the budget, I met with them to hear their views, without, of course, being able to tell them of our plans. Shortly after that meeting, Jim Kemmy issued a statement summing up his and I also believe Noel Brown's, concerns. He said he would support the budget only in the event of the continuation of food subsidies and in relation to VAT as a general principle, he would oppose any major shift from direct to indirect taxation. In particular, there should be no increase in the lower rate of VAT. The trouble was that if we didn't touch either food subsidies or VAT, 
we will be 115 million short of the sums needed for our ambitious social reform and redistribution policies. However, we have found that we could raise the greater part of this required 115 million by two measures. First, action on food subsidies could be confined to a reduction in the butter subsidy and the substitution of general milk subsidy by an EU-financed improved school milk subsidy. This would protect the interests of children. All other food subsidies were left untouched. The second measure involved no increase in the lower VAT rate but did extend VAT to clothing and footwear. The social measures in the budget much more than compensated the less well-off for any impact that these two changes would have on their standard of living. After the budget speech, I met Jim Kemi and Noel Brown, as well as a third non-socialist independent, Sean Loftus, to hear their reactions. Noel Brown clearly understood the social thrust of the budget and said he would support it. And Mr Loftus said little or nothing, giving no indication of dissatisfaction. However, after the budget, he told the media he had been upset because we had not felt able to accept a curious suggestion of his that we seek Fianna Fáil support for the budget on the basis that we would modify its provisions a few months later. Jim Kemi, however, was clearly unhappy. Unlike Noel Brown, he did not seem to appreciate the extent to which this was a redistributive budget. In particular, he rejected any reduction whatever in food subsidies. But the issue of VAT on clothing and footwear was not raised by him, either in this discussion or in the immediate post-budget statement he made to the media after his defeat. Indeed, before the vote on the budget, the issue of VAT on clothing and footwear had not emerged as an issue, receiving only a brief mention by Martin O'Donoghue in his post-budget dull speech. Unquote. One of the things here that Fitzgerald is saying is that it, it was... He he says this, he writes about this in his memoirs and he writes about it in an articles in a couple of articles in the, the Irish Times as well. Um uh well worth a read, well worth worth looking up uh for some insight. But saying they, they thought they could do this, they went in, they they there wasn't a whole lot of discussion around the plans. Again, this is an era of a lot of secrecy around budgets. That they've brought them in, and he says, Look, Jim Kemi was in his mind clear don't touch the lower rate of VAT but um, don't touch the food subsidies. And Fitzgerald feels he's delivered this. Uh, he feels, I've, I've got that. There is some changes to food subsidies, but they're, they're minor, and they're particularly around the, the milk um, kid subsidies with, with kids, that he's come up with the EU plan to, to change that. He also feels that we are extending VAT. We're not changing the lower rate of VAT, but we're extending it to children's shoes. Now, remember, I listed out earlier some of the things Fine Gael were doing with increases in payments to social welfare, increases in, in uh, child support. But so Fitzgerald's mind, look, we were already covering off most of the impact of these things. So we're still being fair. This is, in his mind, a really progressive budget. But is it? Is it something people are going to... Because people, you know, see these food subsidies and they see the 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 vat on children's shoes or clothing as being incredibly important. Um, and, and there's a fear around those. But Fitzgerald says it's not really this vat issue that's there and, and that that's what begins to upset him. And and he says, uh, again, to quote Garth Fitzgerald, quote, if the issue that concerned Jim Kemi was the modification of the food subsidies, where did the legend about the budget falling on the issue of children's shoes originate? I'm afraid that my own post-budget actions were to blame for the emergence of this myth. 
I was moved to reveal the Department of Finance had argued that because some women had smaller feet than some children, such a distinction should not be made. The argument had tickled my fancy during the pre-budget cabinet discussions and had stuck in my mind. It also stuck in the minds of the media. My attempt to lighten the occasion had instantly transformed our budget defeat from an issue of food subsidies into one about children's shoes. And unsurprisingly, Jim Kemmy saw no reason to correct this misinterpretation. Unquote. And Fitzgerald says, look, what was really getting Jim Kemmy here wasn't that in children's shoes, but that became one of those issues. Is, this is nonsense. Why would you be doing this? Some women have feet smaller than children, and yet they're not, you know, oh, they could, they could get away with paying that. You know, look, it became one of these issues that people find hilarious. In reality, what this pointed to here, if you could talk in debate as to whose fault it was, in reality... Governments fall because of trust. Governments fall because of the lack of trust that happened. And in early 1982, you have a government that came in completely unprepared for what it had to do. It formed its government on the basis of having this strong social agenda. It was reliant uh, on Labour Party. It was reliant on socialist support. Uh, it was reliant on, on that really hard left. And Fitzgerald struggles to pull all this together while at the same time saying there is not money in the country. So the first thing they fail to do is deal with spending. And while we talk here about this socially progressive budget, it was socially progressive because we're increasing some spend on certain areas of social welfare. And again, we can talk about the rights and wrongs of that. But ultimately, Ireland was not able. It was again living beyond its means. It was doing pretty much what Fianna Fáil have been trying to do, which is say, we'll give money over here and then we'll tax something else over here to try pay for it. Without actually dealing with the structural problem that everything was all over the place here structurally. The taxes aren't making up for what you're actually spending. Um, and trust breaks down quickly because they said they've reduced taxes. They were talking about reducing burdens. They're not really doing any of that. And very quickly, I think people who get into this government realise they need to get out of it. Um, there are not popular, nice things coming in the next budget. Uh, and you're asking independents who come from very strong socialist backgrounds who are dealing with, and Jim Kemmy was dealing with a lot of poverty in his own area and was, was really concerned about this and, and things like food subsidies and indeed the cost of VAT and products for ordinary people really, really worried him. Um, and he was faced with a situation going, can I continue to support? And of course for independence becomes, well, no, and, and I just step away from it at that point. They are their own person. Um, and they had to be concerned about that. Fine Gael was trying to talk about something at a much higher level and socially progressive budgets, but were they? You know, it was it was interesting in one way of putting it, but in another, was it actually the budget that was going to deal with this crisis? No. Um, and you're going to see that in, in later times and, and greater problems that they, they face. So trust breaks down between all these. And you can see there are scenes in the doll where, you know, you, you, you almost see the free and fall people having a, a bit of a laugh as they look over at Gareth Fitzgerald where he's, he's, talking to Jim Kemmy in the chamber. He's still pleading with him in the chamber. And Jim Kemmy's looking down at his list of, of, of uh, promises that, that have been given by the government. And he's looking at how much isn't going to be delivered here. And he's impassive about it. And Fitzgerald then sits back down and he's kind of annoyed that Fianna Fáil are looking at him. And Fianna Fáil are delighted, saying, look, he's begging to keep his government in place. But you know what? Jim Kemmy's going to walk through our lobby. He's going to vote against the budget. And this is great. We're going for the election here. Um, and of course they were. 
um, they 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 were they were getting ready for an election, um, and that's where it ends up. This budget fails to get through for those reasons. They're not able to get it over the line. Now, interestingly, something else happens though as this government begins to collapse and dissolve. Um, and it begins to change because the scenes are a bit like panic. People hadn't expected it. It's come out of nowhere. And now all of a sudden we're talking election. And then something else strange happens. I'll let Noel Whelan pick, pick this up um, in, in terms of what he said here. Quote, amid scenes of high drama around Leinster House and government buildings, Fitzgerald made arrangements to go to Oris and Uchtaran to ask President Hillary to dissolve the Dáil. The Fianna Fáil frontbench decided to call on Hillary to exercise his constitutional power to refuse Fitzgerald's request for a dissolution and instead invite Hahi to explore whether he could form an alternative government. Hahi issued a statement calling on the President to consider the situation which has arisen now that the Taoiseach has ceased to retain support of the majority of Dáil Éireann and pointing out that Hahi was available for consultations by the President should he so wish. Several Fianna Fáil ministers tried unsuccessfully to contact President Hillary by telephone to urge this course. In issuing the statement, the Fianna Fáil frontbenchers were acting with constitutional propriety. But it has been strongly suggested that they showed a lack of respect for the independence of the President's office in making these persistent efforts to talk to him about the situation. That was certainly how Hillary himself saw it. Unquote. Now... Here we go with, with something again of, of just how politics gets away from itself. What begins to happen here is a little bit of indecision, perhaps again. Fianna Fáil should have been, they were itching for an election. Now they've got it. And all of a sudden, Hahi changes tack just a little bit. Hahi changes tack to say, sits down with the front bench and they think, maybe we could hobble together a government out of this. Maybe we could get some independence or whatever together and we could get something across the line. And that's surprising. It's surprising because, first of all, why? Why when Hahi's been so eager? But again, perhaps Hahi has been wounded a little bit and he's wounded by maybe a lack of control in the party and he's beginning to be a bit indecisive here about certain things one of them being maybe maybe we should just get a government in maybe i should just become Taoiseach without facing the election because what if what if i face this election and i lose this and he wasn't really ready timing wise for it now and and what was it going to happen when you're in there and they begin to come up, concoct this plan. Well, maybe we could form a government without there being an election. And that seems like a reasonable course of action. Because if you do that, you get a government in, just the Paddy Hillary has to allow that be happen and has to say, you know, look, Fianna Fáil can form a coalition easily with, with the others that are there. Um, one of the things, though, I suppose that really challenges that is whether or not there was any sense um, of what they were doing. Was it planned? Was there a real strategy there? Or was Fianna Fáil just 
acting on the hoof here, where they just kind of say making it up as they go along. I mean, this was a crisis situation. It's happening very suddenly that night that uh, Fitzgerald is going to run to the country. He's going to say, look, I, I need, uh, there needs to be an election. We've lost the support of the Dole. Um, and, and perhaps, perhaps it should all be just, you know, that that's what we should, you know, have. But somehow Fianna Fáil come to a conclusion that they need time in order to try form an alternative government. That's never been done. We do know it was done later in 1994, but it's never been done at this point. Um, and it's worth touching on a couple of problems that arise with this. First of all, it is okay um, in to a large extent for the likes of a political party to decide on this course of action. Uh, because you may save the country a great expense and, and uh, a great load of stress and worry by managing to avoid it. But of course, you have a Taoiseach who has said he wants an election. Now, it is highly unusual for a president to ever go against the wishes of a Taoiseach. Most notably, uh, in 1994, when this did happen, of course, the Taoiseach was not saying to the president in 1994, you must have uh, an election. At that point, uh, which we'll cover in a later episode, Albert Reynolds goes to the president and says an alternative government could be formed and therefore the dole is, is not dissolved. However, it is different in this case. Gareth Fitzgerald wants an election. He's going to the country. He says we have to have an election. He doesn't see any way out of it. Um, but Hahi, on the other hand, is saying, well, you know, maybe we can come up with something. So they decide at this point that, you know what, we're going to ring um, the president and we're going to, to, to see what happens. Um, if I turn to, to Stephen Collins and, and his assessment of, of, of this and, and what happened. On the night of the budget defeat, a series of events took place which were to return to haunt Hawhey almost a decade later. At the time they passed unnoticed in the welter of excitement generated by the unexpected general election. What happened was that after the minority Fine Gael Labour government was defeated, the Fianna Fáil front bench issued a statement calling on President Hillary not to grant a dissolution of the dole, but to look to Fianna Fáil to form a government. Immediately afterwards, phone calls were made from the Fianna Fáil rooms in Leinster House to Oris on Uchtheron. It is still not clear who made those calls. In May 1990, in an interview with postgraduate student Jim Duffy, Brian Lenehan insisted that it was he himself. Hahi and Sylvester Barrett, who had telephoned the Oris. Later on national television, when he was standing in the presidential election campaign, Lenehan denied this, claiming that his medical condition at the time of the Duffy interview was precarious and that he was on heavy medication following his liver transplant operation the previous year. In a subsequent book on the issue, he insisted that he never phoned the Oris. Gareth Fitzgerald says in his autobiography that he spoke to President Hillary that night and that seven phone calls were made to the President, but he did not know by whom. It emerged some years later that Hahi had threatened the army officer on, on duty, Captain Barber, for acting on instructions and not putting him through to the President. So concerned was President Hillary at the threats of the officer's future career prospects that he insisted on placing a note in Captain Barber's personal file stating that he had acted properly and under his instructions at all times. Hahi's bullying tactics were to come to back nearly a decade later to end Fianna Fáil's grip on the presidency, unquote. Again here, you get a sense of Fianna Fáil 
being involved in a situation where they, they didn't really know what they were doing. They had an idea, but no idea how to actually make that idea happen. So it all seemed a little bit like I, nobody even knows who they were going to approach. What was the opportunity of approaching that alternative uh, government? But it is important to note, just in terms of this, because we'll come to it later, um, talking about other elections and, and Lenehan and the, the, the presidency, but it is important to note that a lot of calls were made, a lot of talk about whether they were about Brian Lenehan. It would seem from the evidence that Brian Lenehan was there or thereabouts, however, probably did not make one of those calls on, on the weight of the evidence. He did say in an interview with a postgraduate student that um, he had... But it is probably um, unlikely that he did because uh, at the time he gave that interview, he was in the midst of what was called a, a rejection crisis. And it had actually very nearly killed Brian Lenehan, but that wasn't being spoken about at the time. Um, this was in, in uh, you know, in, in uh, 1990 when he was giving the interview um, to a student, Jim Duffy, uh, he was incredibly ill at the time. He shouldn't have even been at work, never mind giving interviews to anybody. And his recollection of things, I think, and his tendency maybe to over-egg it, as, as Lenehan was sometimes known to do, said, oh, yeah, yeah, I made one of the phone calls. And that and he's probably recounting stuff from others. Just having talked about, you know, what, what it was, um, it, it would seem that he probably hadn't. Uh, on, on better evidence but look maybe we'll never know what was the issue though with these phone calls at this time well not so much an issue uh, as as just the difficulty it created because first of all when it comes down to the Fianna Fáil and what they did there was nothing wrong with issuing the statement it was unusual and it would be highly unusual for President Hillary to go against the uh, wishes of the Taoiseach of the day to have an election. However, um, the idea that they might do um, was possible. Um, and it was one of those things that maybe, maybe, um, you know, maybe we could convince the president to do it and it would be worthwhile. The problem here, was, so that was okay. Even indeed ringing the president or letting the president know um, it was one of those things that was that crossing a line. Well, you could probably argue no. Um, citizens are all entitled to ring the president. We might not get through, but we're entitled to ring the president. Um, technically, in the given crisis, if Fianna Fáil thought they could form a government and that was going to save some big national issue, was that reasonable? Possibly, yes, reasonable. The problem here, though, is not any of those things of, of it actually happening. The problem seems to be that Hillary felt the pressure that was being applied, that this was not just ringing up and saying, by the way, letting you know, we think you shouldn't dissolve the dole, we could form a government, make your own decision. It was seven phone calls made in quick succession, pretty much almost, and, and it goes back to that image, perhaps of Hahi that people have of that, you know, look, you're, you're a Fianna Fáil president deep down, you do what we tell you. And that they were ordering Hillary not to do this. That there was putting seven phone calls, a lot of pressure on. Then you get this thing of how he ringing up and threatening the army officer there. Again, 
you can understand and see it all happening. But that's where the line's crossed. You cannot pressure the president into doing it and say, you know, president, get into line. The office has to be respected. And Hillary felt the office wasn't being respected by the fact that they were putting this pressure on him. In any event, uh, Hillary does not bow to that pressure. And uh, he grants a dissolution, which is probably always going to happen. Uh, and we're into the election. Now, just to take um, a little bit then of, of where the election goes. So you've that messy start to things. Uh, we'll come back to haunt people later. Uh, to touch on, on, on a piece here again, Noel Whelan covering this says, quote, the Bruton budget and the crisis in the public finances dominated the campaign and the divisions within Fianna Fáil and the front bench became public. On the night the election was called, and again the following morning, Hahi attacked what he described as the outgoing government's obsession with the level of foreign borrowing, accusing it of being hypnotised by the debt. He argued that the current budget deficit could be tackled when there was a return to growth. The trivialising of the situation horrified even some of his closest allies in the party, including Reynolds, who joined others in making their views known at an angry front bench meeting later that day. Hahi was forced to accept the more responsible line now favoured by the majority of his spokespersons. In a radio interview the following weekend, O'Donoghue contradicted Hahi's earlier campaign utterances and pointedly avoided answering questions about whether he supported Hahi's leadership. Later in the campaign, Hahi announced that Fianna Fáil would accept the current budget deficits and borrowing requirements set out in the coalition budget, but would not implement Bruton's harshest proposals. That budget became Fine Gael's election manifesto, and to some extent also that of the Labour Party. Indeed, in his memoirs, Gareth Fitzgerald describes how he experienced a moment of total exhilaration when he realised that his government was going to lose the budget vote. This was it! We were going into battle on a budget that we could defend with conviction and enthusiasm. Later in the campaign, a revised version of the budget was published by Bruton, which bowed to pressure from the Labour Party and abandoned the proposal to tax children's shoes. Unquote. And that's interesting because you take Gareth Fitzgerald going into this and you take he's got a budget, he's got the public finances, they've gone in, they've broken their promises. Yeah, but you know what? We did the right thing by the country. We've got a budget here. Fitzgerald is delighted. He's actually, he experiences this moment of exhilaration that it's going to fall because he says, you know what, great, we're going in here and Fianna Fáil are going to give us. Now, maybe, maybe that was it. Maybe that was what Fianna Fáil didn't want to have the election on. Fianna Fáil is deeply divided. Perhaps Fitzgerald knows this because he's happy. He's saying, look, I have a budget here. We can go on with conviction. These things have to be implemented. We're going to do it. We're going to fight the budget. We're going to fight the, uh, the election on the back of this budget. It's going to be a budgetary election. Very rare that this happens, but we've got it now. In the meantime, Hahi's saying, well, I disagree with our budget, but he's got his own people saying his own big hitters going, Charlie, rein it in. We need to do something on the economy here. And Fianna Fáil look divided. Fine Gael have this and they, they, they're, they're able to go out and say, you know what, we've got a budget. Stand by us on the budget. We'll defend it. And they feel they can defend it. How does it go? Well, budgets are hard, though, to explain. They're hard to actually fight. And perhaps that exhilaration was a, uh, that Fitzgerald felt was just a sign of, of number one. This budget was not probably the budget that was going to solve the crisis either. 
it didn't have enough of that to actually get into it. It was still talking about the spending, still wasn't dealing with things. There was an attempt in there and it was certainly something that looked a little bit stronger than the attempt Fianna Fáil was going to have because they seem to be a little bit all over the shop now again. So maybe he felt it, but the truth is the public were looking for different things. They're again still looking for some kind of visionary leadership that's going to ease a lot of the pain that they have on them. Uh, and the quote as the campaign goes on, quote a little bit more about things uh, as to how it turns out. And old Whelan again gives a good account of this. Quote, apart from the budget, press coverage of the election campaign focused on the personality and suitability of the two party leaders. In the last week, they faced each other in the first televised party leaders election debate. How he got the upper hand in the debate itself. However, reports from Fianna Fáil canvassers suggested that they were meeting and Fine Gael and Labour Party were stoking a hahi factor on the doorsteps. Abortion emerged as another issue during the campaign. The pro-life amendment campaign suggested that this was about to be legislated for and secured a commitment from both Hahi and Fitzgerald to introduce a referendum that would insert an additional provision in the constitution. The wording of the two lead the wording the two leaders agreed would, among other things, recognise the life of every unborn child from conception. On polling day, there was one last dramatic development when Hahi's election agent and friend Pat O'Connor was arrested on suspicion of attempting to vote twice. The moratorium on broadcast media meant that they could not cover the story, but the Evening Herald published it on its front page. Unquote. Well, um, a couple of things here to cover in it. First of all, this is one of the things that begins to change in elections. We get televised debates He's a little bit stronger in this space. He 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 manages to come across as quite statesmanlike and, and, and the academic way of Fitzgerald maybe doesn't quite go. But this was a real debate. This was a real heavyweight debate. And one of the reasons it's a heavyweight debate compared to what we know of of politicians today is these two guys really disliked each other. And they had really got some meaty issues with each other that they were going to get into here. Making it a real barnstorming debate if you like in in terms of of what we're used to today which can be quite insipid by comparison even if back then we didn't actually appreciate it but how he manages to get an upper hand on the debate that helps him now imagine the things if things like his election his friend at election age of trying to vote twice you know the old thing of Fianna Fáil used to say vote early vote often the joke and yeah you know probably was a lot more rampant in these days although did it change actually and results probably not on that kind of scale but the fact that it even was happening and it gets that kind of coverage feeds into that story of you know look these guys chance in their arm in the election though Fine Gael start to struggle here with some of the, the the problems there's the unfinished business of what was actually going on with the result because Fianna Fáil have a chance now. They, the, the, the hunger strikes have faded into the background. The hunger strikes have ended. They didn't end well. Um, they haven't been. Fitzgerald hasn't had a positive influence on, on the hunger strikes. If anything, those in the nationalist disposition probably feel his handling of it was even worse than how he's at this stage. Um, and, and that he was totally helpless. And Maggie Thatcher's just ignoring them completely and... and they have zero to no influence. Fitzgerald started in the hunger strike issue. Full of gusto and then it was 
pretty much gone in 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 no time um and and he seemed to just kind of distance himself from it wasn't seemed to be where he actually wanted to be at this point in the career probably understandably in such a short term where the economics had kicked off so majorly for him <clears throat> ultimately Fianna Fáil uh have an opportunity to get back some of those seats and they face into this election now being able to say right national question may not be to the fore but we're still going to reclaim that nationalist republican ground um Fianna Fáil are going to be able to say that that look these guys are not going to be able uh you know these guys are not getting to grips with the economy uh and and, and they were true in a sense that spending cuts were going to be the reality um but during the campaign no party actually says we're going to have major spending cuts. They play that down. Um, Fine Gael continue very much, this is our budget, this is what we need. Um, how he may start with this idea that he wants to dismiss budget cuts, but he's forced to adopt similar policies. Really, the economic situation means that there's not a whole lot of difference now going to happen between these parties. Because nobody's actually saying the one thing that needs to be said. We're going to cut spending. But however, they all are coming to some general agreement. It's about trust again. And it's about for the public who have become accustomed at this stage that they're they're in tough times. Feeling, who do we trust? Who's actually going to deliver? What could the result be? Um, and, and they're unsure of that. Um, and, and it's interesting... How, going back to that point that we're talking about, the the hahi factor, that they were now saying there was a hahi factor. There were echoes in that quote I gave you earlier from, from Albert Reynolds too, of, you know, was there a hahi factor? Was this suddenly, um, was this suddenly going to be now the new thing for Fianna Fáil, that they couldn't win an election because of Hahi, Hahi who had been perceived to be at one point one of their greatest strengths was now actually the drawback in it. And interesting again to pick up on that point because as the results come in, uh, it's evident that, that Fianna Fáil are, are not going to get a majority here. Albert Reynolds again talks about his experience of working with, with Hahi, and he, he makes an interesting quote here, uh, just on it, because Fianna Fáil go into this election again, hoping that they're going to get a majority. That becomes clear, they're, they're not going to, their vote's going up, but again, they're not going to get that, that majority. Quote Albert Reynolds here, quote, I had always found Hahi a very fair leader. As a minister, if you did your job well, he did not interfere, but only encouraged. True, he always wanted the job done yesterday and was a stickler for time, but he lived by the same rules himself. He was also strict and tough, uh, and though he was always ready to praise good work, any raw recruit caught not performing would be eaten alive. When the votes were counted on the night of February, 9th, February 19th of February 1982, it was obvious that no party was going to win outright. Charlie McCreevy came through with a very high poll, proving how much support his action had engendered and I too topped the poll in Longford where Fianna Fáil won three seats out of four however when the overall result was announced though Fianna Fáil's 81 seats put it three seats ahead of the combined Fine Gael Labour total it was still three seats short of an overall majority 
This was a disappointment and meant we had to look to the independents and smaller parties to decide who would form a government, unquote. And you see there again that sense of, of working with Hahi and this, this tough, intimidating kind of man who, who would eat you alive if, if necessary. But Randall seems to feel, look, at he lives by that himself, so I don't have a particular issue with it. Um, but it, it, it does create that sense for, for politicians of, you know, how could you work with this? And was there a Hahi factor? You know, earlier Randall just talked about, you know, this idea of how difficult it was maybe to sell Hahi and their trust in Hahi. Everybody seems to be feeling this. Now, we saw too how PJ Mara talked about that was Peter Prendergast and others have put out this thing of, you know, the Hahi factor and we're stoking a Hahi factor. Um, and meanwhile, Fine Gael are thinking they're amazed that Mara has created this image of Hahi as this dependable future guy despite all this. Um so there's a lot of distrust on all sides about how how the images are being shaped. But they go into the election. Interestingly, say there's there's the with the hunger strikes gone, there were two seats that were taken by hunger strike candidates. Fianna Fall take those two seats. Um they also benefit from the fact that there's a little bit of a swing back from maybe some other candidates who they would have lost some votes to who ultimately weren't elected but got back in. And that's where you see Fianna Fáil managed to come back with 81 seats, an increase of three. Fine Gael dropped two to 63. And Labour Party, 15. They remain the same as they were. Sinn Féin, the Workers' Party, come back with three seats. That's up two. Uh, Sinn Féin get Rory O'Brody elected, um, or, or failed to get Rory O'Brody in there. So he's in a new... Uh, TD. So he he comes in. Um, you have the, the Republican Socialist... No seats, Communist Party, no seats, and independence, four seats. But you begin to see among this how, first of all, Sinn Féin, Rory O'Brien going there, doesn't take a seat, but it is, again, they're contesting it. And that's that's interesting uh, that they're, they're out there and they're going to contest seats. They're going to run seats. Sinn Féin now have moved in. We said that in 81. That was a change. They begin to see a, a purpose to running in it. Uh, so Rory O'Brien, leader of Sinn Féin, has led them into that, that scenario, even if they don't take seats. Others, though, Labour. Uh, Labour end up here with 15 seats, um, same as they had. Uh, so again, look, they've been in government. At least it hasn't been a hit, but that stagnation again begins to, to, to worry them. But it's a positive in that they at least did not end up... Um, losing seats despite a, a small maybe a one percent reduction in their their overall vote Fine Gael's vote um first preference vote actually went up but they lost two seats and they're the margins that you're at Fianna Falls went up two percent and you know they managed to come back here with 47 percent of the first preference vote compared to Fine Gael's 37 percent truth is that 47 percent of the vote Fianna Falls should have comfortably got an overall majority what Fianna Fáil was not good at at this point was vote management. Uh, the right numbers of candidates, they were running too many people, too many places. They made silly errors in, in the geography behind it. And it cost them because 47% of the vote. Fianna Fáil will be on the verge of an overall majority many years later. They will be getting pretty much the exact same return of seats on six 
7% less of, of the vote. That's what's impressive here. Um, you know, it, when you think of, of how parties manage it. Fine Gael were doing a little bit better in terms of, of how they were actually managing things. But, you know, I mean, Fine Gael got 37% of the the first preference vote. Um, they're, they're, they're doing okay to get 38% of the seats. You can do much better on those returns, though, and that's something Fine Gael are going to work hard on. It takes Fianna Fáil, particularly for the next election, it's going to take Fianna Fáil a little while more in order to, to get that point and, and, and figure it out. Fianna Fáil, though, now finds itself coming in here, and, and you get this sense that Hahi had been damaged. There's this Hahi factor. Um, Fine Gael has at least got this sense now that they know what they're competing on, they know they want to compete on the economy. They've they've gone out on a budget. They've lost, but it's a narrow enough loss at the same time. Um, there's no big massive swing at Fianna Fáil here, though they have got a few percent back. Fianna Fáil, though, with those extra couple of seats, now have the chance to form a government, and they're going to do it. Now, one of the interesting things that happens in the formation of that government, of course, is that they need to talk to some independents. Um, and some independence about how they're going to create uh, a new government. But there are doubts. There are doubts in Fianna Fáil. Um, and on count day, those doubts were being expressed. Um, quote again, Noel Whelan. On the 19th of February, it became clear as votes were being counted that although Fianna Fáil would win additional seats, it had again failed to gain an absolute majority. It was a huge disappointment, especially given the circumstances in which the coalition government had collapsed. During the televised coverage of the count, Jim Gibbons, who had just been returned to the seat he had lost the previous June, told reporters in Carlo Kilkenny and the presenter Brian Farrell on RTE that the question of the leadership will be raised at the first meeting of the parliamentary party. The outgoing chairperson of the parliamentary party, William Kennelly, who had just lost his seat, told reporters in Waterford that Fianna Fáil would have done better under a more popular leader and that he too would not be surprised if the party leadership became an issue in the near future. That afternoon, the Evening Herald hit the streets with the headline, Leadership Fight Facing Hahi, unquote. Now, all of this begins to make it very clear that Charles Hahi has some real, real big problems in what he's going to face. Um, he's going to face huge dissent within the party, He's going to face a lot of unhappy people uh, who are going to possibly go against him. Um, the parliamentary party meeting goes on to meet. Um, various people are being sounded out and, and, and people like Ray Burke um, looking around the party to see what's what's the, the, the opinion within us and to try to shore up Hahi. <clears throat> um and there were so many things going on within it as, as how he had to immediately move to secure his position. Uh, there was talk um, that Des O'Malley was, was going to arrange a heave against him. I'm going to let, again, um, allow Noel Whelan to, to take up on, on, on this uh, here. Uh, quote, they settled with varying degrees of enthusiasm on a third option whereby O'Malley would challenge Hahi at the parliamentary party in the vote on who would be party nominee for Taoiseach. 
In response to the various public and private machinations, Hahi, for whom Brian Lenehan and Ray Burke had also sounded out opinion within the parliamentary party, decided to bring forward the first post-election meeting to 25 February. He hoped to disorient the conspirators and to clarify the situation so that negotiations could begin with independence. There was intense speculation about whether Hahi could win the vote. Jack Lynch, in one of his rare public comments since retiring from Dáil Éireann, was quoted as saying that he always regarded O'Malley as one of the most able members of Dáil Éireann and of Fianna Fáil governments. He was certain that he would be a future leader of the party and a future Taoiseach. Despite media support, O'Malley's heave was badly organised and incoherent, in part because those supporting him were divided in how to oust Hahi. Most deputies, even those now lukewarm about him, felt the time was not right and that Hahi, as the incumbent leader and a former Taoiseach, was better positioned to persuade the independents to support Fianna Fáil's return to government. In the event, O'Malley's challenge dissipated at the parliamentary party meeting. Among the crucial interventions was that of Porrick Faulkner, now a former Cairn Corler and a long-time opponent of Hahi. In his memoirs, Faulkner explained his thinking at the time. I feared that an attempt to replace Hahi after such a short period in office, whether successful or not, would destroy the prospects of stability. I still hoped that it might be too late it might not be too late to heal the divisions in the party. I was anxious to put a stop to the constant bickering that went on. I wanted to give the party time to settle down. Unquote. So Look, Fianna Fáil have had all of this. They immediately go back in. And because he's not got this majority, he's not secure as leader just yet. But he goes into the meeting. Um, and and let's just, just go back to, to Noel Whelan and talk about the outcome of that meeting. Quote, the meeting lasted less than an hour and many journalists waiting around Leinster House for the result were stunned when the outcome was announced. In the days leading up to the meeting, Vincent Brown had published in McGill a list of 30 deputies who were expected would oppose Hahi. Bruce Arnold and the Irish Independent listed 36. At one point, the bookies had O'Malley 2-1 to one to win, with Hahi only 7-4. to four. All of this gave some credence to Hahi's repeated contention that the opposition to him was media-generated. Unquote. So Hahi says, look, the media want me out, but that's all. Then he manages to secure this and then he goes on and says, right, now he has a stranglehold on the party. He's put away this division and debate with these guys. It's not going to go away, but they've been put in their box. We had the meeting. You had your chance. You're dealt with. And now the media are surprised because they're thinking, well, how did all of that supposed support disappear? Maybe it is just the media making it all up. Hahi then goes on to form a deal and that deal becomes something that changes, I suppose, how independents are viewed forevermore in the double because Hahi needs a deal. He also needs a deal with independents now because he's come out of this struggle within his own party. He's secured his leadership, but he needs to move fast. He needs to move quick and he needs to be in government. If he fails on this, then you have a really big problem. He's going to be a minority government, but he wants to get the independents on board, one of whom is a new independent, Tony Gregory. And he's going to have a deal with Tony Gregory. And Tony Gregory represents inner city Dublin, uh, one of the most disadvantaged areas of the country, huge amount of lack of investment. Now, a lot of people would criticise the Gregory deal over the years, including Gareth Fitzgerald. The truth was, though, that this is a time when politics and money follows what various people and parties and TDs, ministers, 
each believe in their own area. And while we can give out about constituencies, that's part of how politics works. Local people elect someone that will represent their area and they bring that to the table. And various areas get it. This this part of Dublin was forgotten because they didn't have someone at the table. And Gregory's one of the first people to really come in here at the table and say, this is the investment that's needed in this area. And it's long overdue, and it is. Hahi agrees to it. Now, one of the interesting asides, as you will remember, Tony Gregory in 1981 had just lost out on an election and he blamed a poster campaign about the hunger strikes being put up um, around about it in, in areas where they wouldn't have been pro-hunger striker um, and he blamed Bertie Ahern for it, creating this animosity between them. Ahern uh, denied it but now Gregory has the power to put Hahi in uh, and and again going back to Michael Clifford and Shane Coleman's book um, Bertie Ahern the Drumcondra Mafia um, they just give you a small quote of this, uh, what happened then. Quote, Ahern had to suffer the ignominy of driving Hahi to Gregory's office in Summerhill to negotiate the Gregory deal, a major investment package in the north inner city to be delivered in return for Gregory's vote. He had to wait in the car for three and a half hours while I did the deal. What a suck in, Gregory remembered. Unquote. And that just shows you how the localism still kicks off in politics and the local rivalries are still there. Uh, he was thrilled by the fact that he saw his rival in the constituency, Bertie Hearn, now stuck outside in the car while he does a big deal with Hahi. Hahi does these deals. Hahi gets in. Hahi needs the deal. And now we come to a point. Out of that election... In early 1982, you have a sense of, okay, parties, have they learned the lessons? Fine Gael made some rash promises in 81, but they've had to change things very quickly and sort out the money that they hadn't got in the budget. They'd come up with a budget, they hadn't got through, they fought the election standing on that budget, and that's now their ground. We're going to stand on that kind of budget. How he wants to do things slightly differently, but has been forced by his cabinet to come to a broad agreement on what has to be done. So you would think, with a big package, yes, that's going to have to be funded for the Gregory deal, that's more spending. But maybe, maybe they've all got a sense now, a taste of government and an understanding of what actually has to be done. So there is some hope that this Fianna Fáil government, that can just do something for the inner city Dublin. There's a cost to that, but it'll do that, and Gregory will then continue to support it on anything else. And that's going to allow Fianna Fáil to say, right, we go ahead now, and we can act like a majority, we can take the tough decisions. That's what some people begin to think might happen here. Is there is there a chance it could work? We're soon going to see. um, Because that's the mood that it kicks off in. A chance of maybe something different, maybe something new, maybe this will be a bit more secure. And that's going to leave, looking forward in the elections, a chance to say, well, could the government succeed? Well, in truth, it's going to do its own business for a while. But our next episode is also going to take place in 1982. So we know it doesn't last very, very long. But for now... We will step back out of history and we'll await until next week to come back to that 1982 election. So that's it for 
first election of 1982. We will return next week. We're going to look at the second election and all the turmoil that that brought and how that ended up perhaps coming in and how all of this was perhaps a therapeutic exercise in trying to get to one solution and one government that can actually deal with the problems and stability was the quarter of the day so many changes so many doubts so many permutations but very few options for stable permanent government of course with Fianna Fáil never been willing to have a coalition that meant stable government was very difficult in this period Thank you for listening once again. Thank you for everybody who has contributed. Please do remember to share this series. We'd like people to get involved in understanding the history of elections and political parties and policies because when we look back at this stuff, we begin to understand just how to overcome some of the problems we might have today or what were the mistakes of the past and understanding that not everything we face today is new under the sun, but it has all come from somewhere. And that course, that river that runs through Irish history and Irish political history is still very strong today. Uh, and there's lots to be learned from looking back at these times. So I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share the podcast and let people know about it. Uh, get the word out a little bit further. Once again, um, thanks uh, also to Donald Cronin and Car Communications for access, of course, to the library which makes the podcast possible uh, there and uh, to to get all of the uh, details and history and quotes drawn into one place thank you again and we will see you next week where we will be looking at the election the second election of 1982